Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Razib Khan. He's one of the top science bloggers in the world. Um, he writes about genetics, history, and evolution on his blog, Unsupervised Learnings. And he has a podcast of the same name. Um, and you can find it at razib.substack.com. So, uh, Razib, thanks for coming on the podcast. That was my pleasure, man. Yeah, yeah. So can you, can you give my audience a little bit of background about you, uh, how you got into all this stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been interested in topics like history, uh, demographics, etc. And um, I've also been interested in science. I have a scientific background, scientific training. And over the last 20 years, uh, genetics has become just a really big deal uh, in terms of you know, just as a tool to do various things, whether it's in the biomedical space or historical inference. And, um, you know, so obviously I'm interested in demographics, historical inference, and, um, you know, uh, genetics is a tool I can use as a geneticist, and so I do. Um, so, you know, like, uh, like, like as we're recording right now, I um, decided to do a bunch of pairwise genetic distances between populations and stuff just because I could for a post, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of things by myself or I replicate what's been done. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's a lot of what I do. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, all right, so I, I just like to jump into it. So uh, my first question is, assuming there's no gene editing uh, in the near future, what is the long-term equilibrium for intelligence look like? So there's, like, multiple visions, right? Like, one one view is, like, you know, Charles Murray coming apart, you have, uh, you know, you have fat tails because there's assortative mating. Another is there's like a slight dysgenic effect because there's lower fertility among uh, higher intelligence people. Um, so what does the equil equilibrium look like if there's no gene editing? Mm, more like the second uh, in terms of not an equilibrium yet. Uh, we're not going to have an equilibrium until, you know, the reproductive differentials equilibrate. They will at some point, you know, but could be centuries um so like at this point um people with genes for educational attainment tend to delay childbearing to the point where a lot of them do not have children you know uh because they invest in educational attainment in the short term so you know they don't have as many children and their generation times are longer like the math isn't difficult there right um so uh right now there's strong native selection not strong I mean, there's there's negative selection on genes for educational attainment i mean Everyone who's looked at it says that, at least in the developed world. Right. Yeah. Uh, is this something we can expect in the long term? Because, like, naively, I would expect, like, it, people who are more intelligent, as long as there's, you know, some sort of selection pressure in the long term, um, you know, like, th there should be selection for, um, I guess, educated, smart uh, people because they, they they will just have the cognitive tools to, uh, you know, actually uh, reproduce uh, or, you know, survive and thrive. Right. You, as long as like some smart people want to survive and thrive. Yeah, I mean, yeah, survive and thrive is one thing, but have a repro have repro have offspring is a different thing. Uh, you yeah. know, the incentives in our society um, are such that a lot of people believe that thriving is being child free, or you know, what usually happens, I think, is people want to establish themselves in their twenties, and they don't want to put too many too much thought. I mean, at least you know, professional managerial, you know, college educated people. And then in their 30s, they start thinking about it. And sometimes people wait too long. Uh, there's fertility issues or just they just wait too long. They can't find someone else, you know. So, um, yeah, in the, in the long term, obviously, there's a limit. There's a limiting principle. But you don't need to be that bright to 
you know, survive and have a lot of children. And on the contrary, um, there's clear evidence that uh, not being bright is good for your reproductive output. So, you know. Yeah. The movie about um, that, 2006. So. Uh, what, the, the movie's called 2006? No, 2006, Idiocracy. So. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, what explains the level of endogamy you see in, um, in between Indian jatis, uh, like Indian mm. subcasts? Because you have a very excellent uh, blog post about this. And yeah. so the, uh, apparently, as you say, there's genetic evidence that for thousands of years, uh, these, these jatis, mm-hmm. like living in the same village, you know, they're not intermarrying, they're not having mm-hmm. uh, kids together. Um, you know, even within the context of like, you know, slaves in America, this is not a thing that happened, right? Like, yeah, you yeah. have Sally Hemings, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, mistress. Yeah. So, uh, like, I, I don't, how, how is it possible for thousands of people? What kind of social structure could lead to this? Yeah, nobody really knows uh, is a short answer. So the, the math is like, you know, there's like, there's uh, evidence from from Andhra Pradesh, uh, South India, David Reich looked at it. And it's like, if you run the math, it's like, oh, like their endogamy rate is like, you know, point, you know, it's like 99.5% per generation, like, you know, super high. So, I mean, you know, when, when I was younger, um, you know, the endogamy rate for like black Americans was like 95%, which is mm-hmm. high. And today it's like 85%, you know? But, you know, 5% is, like, 10 times bigger than what I'm talking about, you know? So, yeah, yeah, like you said, uh, average black American is 20% European in ancestry, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's just, like, there's really high barriers in the Indian subcontinent in terms of, like, how it can be maintained. One thing that I I wonder about is um, infanticide, Um, Mm. perhaps. I mean, maybe there's, like, social taboos. Uh, Reproductive fitness is really low. I don't know. I, I... it doesn't, uh, you know, for humans, it doesn't make sense, but the, the data is what it is. Um, Indians just are really good at endogamy for some reason, um, you know, whereas in other populations, the general pattern is, um, you know, I mean, you see someone, you're like, oh, they're fine, you know? Yeah, yeah. One thing leads to another, you know, it's just, it's just like, that's, you know, this isn't uh not rocket science it's universal human nature right mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> somehow indians were able to escape that no one no really no one really knows why i mean i've had multiple um geneticists come up to me and be like what's up with this and like, i don't know and he's like why are you asking me and i'm like well i mean you know you're brown so maybe you know it's like they're trying to figure out whether there's a secret sauce here because it's just not it doesn't make any sense for a uh for a mammal where the males in particular are highly um polygynous right. you know an ideal, so. I mean, are there any hypotheses out there about that? I try to explain this. Uh, yeah, not really. I mean, you know, it's like oh, like caste system, blah blah blah. You know, but again, I mean, you know, sexual exploitation of lower caste women by upper caste men has been a thing. So I do wonder, like, what's up with that? I mean, there are some cases where you see things. So, like uh, on the Nair, the Nair group in Kerala, um, you know. Many of them, uh, many of the women, traditionally, not always, but they have these relationships with uh, Kerala Brahmins, Namathiri Brahmins, uh, that weren't marriages, but they were like consort, they were consorts, and, uh, you know, Carol, I think the Nairs also did polyandry and other things, but, you know, you see in the Nairs, you see, like, a very range of, like, genetic distance to Namathiri Brahmins, and that's just because their biological fathers, their fathers, I mean, I don't know if they call them fathers, but, you know, I mean, 
are of that group. So that so there are exceptions to this. Um, but you know, like like you're telling me, yeah, like in general, in general, I can like look at someone. Um, most Indians like figure out like what their community, as they say, is from, which is like not like typical. You know, most most of like most of the world's not like that. It's basically like if if all of India is like populated by people like Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> you know, very very anonymous oh, yeah. people because people are like you know people are like oh well there's no other example and I'm like actually there is like Ashkenazi mm-hmm. Jews, the Roma who themselves are of part Indian origin. You know, there's there, there's there's a few examples. The issue is just like having a whole society like this is pretty weird. Yeah, that is that is the the innovation. It's like oh let's have a whole society that stratified. So you know, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um. Uh, speaking of Ashkenazi Jews, so I, I thought I thought your um, I thought your post on that was very interesting, and you know you talk about how um, you know before before Jews were uh, kind of liberated in Europe in the 18th century or sorry it was the 19th century there just wasn't yeah, that early much 19th. achievement. Yep, um, there, there there wasn't uh, that much Jewish achievement, and it kind of made me wonder: are there like are there some other uh, population groups in the world today that are uh, that were bottlenecked by a similar process? Um, and who are also very endogamous that, you know, once they get to a point of prosperity and uh, and liberation that Jews went through in the 19th century, you know, in the future, we'll just be talking about how they're outputting uh, a greater portion of the world's cultural heritage. Um, like, uh, it, it, you know, like parts of the world that are just going through industrialization now and might have like small populations like Ashkenazi Jews, right? Um, yeah. Is there potential for like a new Ashkenazi Jew in the next century or two? Is I guess what I'm asking. So what you need, so Ashkenazi Jews are highly endogamous. Were yeah, and um, you know they they emerged in the context of Central East Europe as a middleman minority. Um, you know what what the whole thing is like. You know uh, Haredi Jews dressed like Polish nobles. You know because they work for these Polish nobles as factors and tax collectors and administrators and whatnot. Um, so I guess you have to look for something like that. Um, one, you know, this isn't totally equivalent because uh, endogamy is not a big issue here, but like Fujianese, you know, uh, Chinese from Fujian have traditionally uh-huh. done better on examinations going back a thousand years, going back to the Song Dynasty. Uh, so there were like um, affirmative action quotas on people from yeah. Fujian. <laughs> so if you look at like who, so Fujian, people basically... A lot of the rich Chinese, not all, obviously, um, but, you know, traditionally, like, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, the elite families are, um, you know, Shanghaiese, some Fujianese. And so, like, these coastal, southeast coastal people uh, in China have traditionally been extremely enterprising. And central government in China has often clamped down on them. Obviously, this government is not. Um, the modern economy cannot. And so I think these, these populations might come into their own, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, didn't you write somewhere else that the, the Chinese government for a long time, like not just, you know, the CCP, but like, I guess China, uh, you know, in Chinese history, there's been uh, many instances of the government trying to um, get rid of like genetically distinct groups by, I guess, breeding them into the larger stock. So potentially that reduces the odds of some, uh, you know, outlier endogamous group. Yeah, so in China, the only equivalent, like, like you would see in Ashkenazi Jews, are the Hakka in South China. Mm-hmm. And the Hakka are descended from northern Chinese migrants. And so they speak like a dialect of Mandarin, um, northern Chinese, you know, dialect in the south, like in Guangdong. 
uh, where the Cantonese mm-hmm. and Taishanese are. And, you know, they, they still kind of tend to intermarry. I mean, they're, they're, they're spatially isolated. But, you know, again, like um, the Hakka, the Hakka are not like Ashkenazi Jews in having an ideological reason for their endogamy. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, lineages, to some extent like Indian lineages, but um, are paternal. You know, um, so your identity and who you are, your clan is determined by who your father is. So, um, you know, that's, I mean, you might have a lower status if your mother is an ethnic minority, like Zhuang or Uyghur or something like that. But, you know, mm-hmm. informally, but still, officially, you're part of the clan. And so that's, I think, how assimilation has happened. Genetically, people in Guangdong, like the Cantonese, like they have a minority of, um, you know, indigenous or South South ethnic group, you know, uh, ancestry. Some of their practices are clearly not Han Chinese, especially like um, certain marriage practices, certain things that women do. Um, and most of the gene flow is probably from females, from, non, from non-Han that were assimilated in the area. So, yeah, Han, oh, the Han identity is very assimilative. Um, uh, north, of, um, north of the Yangtze, pretty much every Han sample that I have has a little bit of West Eurasian ancestry. South of the Yangtze, none of them have it. And so I think most of that West Eurasia is probably assimilated Mongols and other things like that. Because the Mongols are about ten percent uh-huh. assimilated Mongol, yeah, uh-huh. I think that's what it is. Because the Mongols are about ten percent West Eurasian, uh, and the tell for me is, um, a, you know, like about one percent of Northern Chinese Han men have R one A, maybe point five percent. It's not super high, but R one A is you know mostly found in Iranians and Slavs, and Mongols have it. They have the Indo-Iranian version because they assimilated Scythians and Sarmatians and other. Iranian step people. So I think that's probably where that comes into the Chinese. And, you know, you can go back to um, the Toba Turks and, and other groups after the fall of the Han Dynasty, you know, 1500, or actually 1700 years ago, 1700 years ago. I mean, I think that's when they started introducing that genetic element to northern China, hmm. north of the Yangtze. Uh huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, by, by the way, so there's uh, going back to India. There's been a lot of talk about how uh, a lot of American CEOs of big tech companies are Indians, and specifically uh, for you know from Brahmin Jatis. Um, is there is there some particular reason that that that, that seems to be happening? Wait, wait, what what seems to happen? Can you repeat that again? Well, why are a lot of uh, big tech CEOs Indians, and specifically a lot of them from uh, Brahmin, uh, you know, <laughs> Brahmins? Yeah. Well, the guy from Twik talks not. He's Bania. Um, uh-huh. Well, I mean, I think the, the 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 Indian explanation, which you probably know, is like Brahmins are literate. They're symbolic manipulators, um, and so obviously, you know, if you work at Microsoft or Google, um, and they tend to be particularly South Indian Brahmins, actually, uh, as opposed to North Indian Brahmins. There aren't that many of those, um, and and this goes back to the colonial period, actually. Um, mm-hmm. South Indian Brahmins would migrate to the cities of North India to work in the Indian civil service. You know, the reverse would not happen. So, um, you know, this is like a longstanding issue or issue or phenomenon of South Indian English-speaking Brahmin elites in particular, um, availing themselves of technology, higher education. Um, you know, Tamil Brahmins, for example, are very well represented in engineering and software. And that's obviously the pipeline that Indian Americans are going in, into as CEOs, highly overrepresented. Um, you know, so I think, um, you know, the CEO of Microsoft and the CEO of 
Google are both South Indian Brahmins. I think they're both Telugu Brahmins. There's some there's some like debates, I think, whether um whether the guy at Microsoft uh is a Brahmin online. Because I don't know. Uh, I can't tell these sorts of things. I mean, I can, but not like I don't have like a good instinct, you know what I'm saying? But um mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, so I think Brahmins are, you know, like Ashkenazi Jews, you know, they analogize themselves, particularly South Indian Brahmins. I think we do have to distinguish that because I you know. You know, like one of you heard about like a Guju Brahmin or a UP Brahmin, you know what I'm saying? Those people just stay where they are. You know, they're not um you know, they're they're local landed elites, but they're not uh, like well known outside of the Indian subcontinent, or you know, to be honest, within the Indian subcontinent, from what I can see. Uh, what explains that? I mean, I, so I read um I read a part of the Satya, he's the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, and he he talked about how his like uh, da- uh, parents were like these Marxist philosophers, uh, you know, Brahmin philosophers. Um, but anyway, so so what explains um. What explains why these North Indians were, I guess, uh, complacent, and the, these uh, South Indians were availing themselves of, uh, you know, the, the resources? That yeah, I mean, so I think uh, UP, UP and Bihar, in particular, the elites, they tend to be, they tend to like to be big fish in small ponds. So it's uh-huh. not like there's like Rajput Thakurs all over the world either from UP, right? Uh, Punjab mm-hmm. is different. Um, there's a lot of Punjabis all over the world of various groups. Uh, you know, a lot of Jats, uh, agriculturalists, farmers in Central Valley, Khatris all over the place, you know. Um, in contrast, in UP, Bihar, these North Indian states, um, there's just like, there's less dynamism, less cultural dynamism. The behavioral economic literature shows like a really strong preference for zero-sum gains, um, mm-hmm. wanting to be like at the um, at the pinnacle of the local. This is not always true, you know, but uh, they prefer to be at the pinnacle of the local uh, power structure rather than taking a risk going into somewhere else where they might not be at the peak. You know, they might be way well more well off in the aggregate, but, you know, they wouldn't be at the peak. And so, for example, someone like um like Chandrasekhar of Chandrasekhar Limit, he's a Tamil Brahmin by background. Obviously, he settled in the United States eventually, but, um, you know, I think he was born in Lahore. His dad was working for the Indian Civil Service. And, you know, if you read his biography, they experienced, like, some kind of discrimination, you know, prejudice, being South Indians in the north. And then Chandrasekhar went to the United States and during the time of segregation, you know, and they tried to, like, put him in the blacks-only area in St. Louis, like, for some uh, sports game. There's, like, all sorts of things that happened, you know. And then he experienced prejudice at the hands of, I think, like, Arthur Eddington, in particular, was was pretty pre- prejudiced against Indians and their ability to contribute to physics. So, um, is that the guy who uh, proved uh, Einstein's uh, or the yeah. uh, proved relativity, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think empirically, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, I mean, at least that's Chandrasekhar's take. Like, you know, you don't know if it's like one hundred percent true that Eddington was really, you know, who knows? Because sometimes it turns out that there's personal beefs going on. I don't think Eddington ever told his side. He died a long time ago. Chandrasekhar lived at, until like. It wasn't like until 10 years ago. I think he died 10 years ago. Yeah, I think. Oh, no, not 10 years ago. Like 1995, so a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. 95, so Mm -hmm. 25 years ago. But yeah, I mean, he was still, I mean, so he was still around when I was in high school. I remember someone did a report on him, and, you know, it was hard to find information back then, but. You know, you could. He was still around giving quotes. So, yeah. 
Um, does the work you do involve a lot of traveling? I mean, you're writing about all these different areas of the world, uh, and you know, their uh, um, anthropological and genetic history. Uh, I wonder if that if that requires you, or if it helps you to like just travel to all these places, or are you able to do that just from uh, just from here? I do most of the United States. I mean, I've traveled a little bit, but not too much. I'm not a big traveler internationally. I'm not a, you know, I'm not. Yeah, I don't. I don't do that. Um, some people do. You know, Spencer Wells, who I worked with, former boss. Uh, he's you know traveled all over the world and you know with National Geographic and stuff. That adds a lot of local color in terms of things you see, things you know. Whenever we talked about the Eurasian step, he's been there a lot, so um, you know he can add a lot to that. Um, in a few places, um, if, if if I mean I don't know if you read the Finland series. I've been to Finland, you know. Mm-hmm. So there are certain things that I know about Finland. I've been to Finland. I've been to Italy. I don't know. England just seemed like the United States, but whiter. You know. So <laughs> I mean, there was there wasn't like ooh like whoa like I really understand the British people now. I'm just like okay, they're drinking a lot. I, I think I I think I am not surprised by that. Just judging by. You know, like all those British sitcoms and TV shows where they're like drinking in the morning. I get it now. You know, so. Huh. Yeah. So that's that's one thing I was wondering is uh, knowing all that you know about uh, the history of these different places. Do you feel that uh, when you visit a place or when you learn more about a place, you're like, oh, I, I what they're doing today that makes sense to me. Like why why it is the way it is, given what I know about you know the the uh, roots of what what happened in that place thousands of years ago. Sometimes. Or does it feel that it's just kind of random? No, it's not random. Sometimes you do. I mean, there's sometimes where it's like, you know, someone does this or their family does this, and I'm like, oh, it's because of this. And they're like, what? Oh, you know, like they don't because you don't know the antecedents of you know we don't know the antecedents of everything we do, and so a lot of times mm-hmm. I do, and you know, I mean, the thing was like you know, for example, like um. Americans are really ignorant in geography, so uh, um, so 2019, I'm a scientific conference in American Society of Human Genetics. You know, I'm meeting these people. You know, you're just networking. You're meeting. Um, so I met this uh, Chinese geneticist. Uh, she's I think she's in grad school in the United States. And I was like, oh, like where are you from? She was just like, oh, I'm from a city between Beijing and Guangdong, like exactly in the middle. Okay, so. Here's my my train of thought. Uh, so I immediately blurred out Wuhan. And she was like, "Whoa, how'd you guess that?" You know, it's okay, so a one. She was shocked that I knew what Wuhan that I knew of Wuhan, right? Because most uh-huh. Americans don't. Two, Shanghai's in the middle. But if she was from Shanghai, she would say Shanghai. So it had to be another city. I happen to know that there's a high speed line rail line between um, Beijing and Guangdong, uh, between Guangzhou, and uh, its its middle point is Wuhan. So I knew Wuhan was exactly in the middle, right? And so I was like, you know, these are the sort of things. I mean, it's like, ooh, like an American. It's like super amazing because we don't know any geography. Like her friend was like, you know, I was like looking at him. I was like, oh, you're, you're pretty tall. Like, you know, are you from North China? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm from the east. And I'm like, Shandong. And then he was just like, whoa, how'd you know that? And I'm like, what's the easternmost province? I mean, I mean, it's just an educated, you know what I'm saying? If someone's like, someone's like, mm-hmm. uh, has like, um, they're talking about chowder. You know, and drinking tonic. And uh-huh. it's like wicked smart. And I'm just like, are you from Boston? They're like, whoa, <laughs> that's wicked crazy. How'd you know that? And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's because because I know, like everybody outside of America rightfully assumes that Americans do not know anything about where they're from. Like nothing. You yeah. know? And so it's just like an incredible party trick with an American accent to be like, <laughs> 
you are from Praha. You know, they're like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but by the way, can you guess my jati? Uh, well, I mean, I know you're Guju, right? Uh-huh. But I, I couldn't, I didn't guess it. Um, I don't know by the name. I mean, you look, uh, are you like half Patel, half Bonnie? I'm just guessing. Yeah, yeah. Did I guess right? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> How did I do that? I don't even know, man. <laughs> my mom, my, my dad, uh, my, my, yeah, my dad is Patel and my mom is uh, Mania, yeah. Okay, all right. That's, that's uh, exactly I mean, correct. Okay, guys, um, <laughs> this was not a conspiracy between us. Like, he literally, right. like, just, I, I didn't know that question was going to be asked, and yeah. I actually didn't have any. I just, like, looked at him, and I was just like, this is my guess. This is my yeah. educated guess. Right, right. So that alone should justify your subscription. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I, I've had this question about, um, you know, the, the greater male variance uh, theory uh, for a long time, which is that, uh, so the, basically the idea is um, men produce more geniuses, but also more idiots. Yeah. Um, so I've always wondered, like, uh, why is that the case? Because you would, so is, is there some, there must be some mechanism that, like, just increases the variation, um, like, you know, gives you a higher odds of being a genius, but at the cost of higher odds of also being an idiot. Um, that is like more activated than men, right? Like, wh wh why? Wh what is the trade-off that um, involves? Uh, if you activate this trade-off, you might be, have a higher odds of becoming a genius, but also a higher odds of becoming an idiot. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you got to like BS a little bit about the molecular mechanism, or like I haven't looked at it in detail in a while. But one of the hypotheses is, for example, we have one X chromosome. So with X chromosomes, normally with women, um, there's uh, inactivation of one X mm -hmm. chromosome randomly in the cell, right? Or in the tissue or whatever, in the tissue region, bar bodies, right? So every cell has an X chromosome and they tend to clump where it's like, they're these like bar bodies, like X chromosomes that are inactivated. They're not expressing, they're like, they're like euchromatic. Okay, people are gonna be like, oh my God, like he's getting euchromatic and heterochromatic mixed. I was gonna mix up, okay? I'm not a molecular geneticist. But anyway, um, so like one of the X chromosomes has to inactivate and that's random, okay? So let's say um, a woman has like a major mutation in the X chromosome. You know that like she has another copy, right? But you know it could be that in that cell there's a malfunction because the other copy is the one that's inactivated, the one that's functional. Now, if you're a man, there's no choice. It's only one X chromosome, mm -hmm. right? So obviously that's limiting the degrees of freedom, right? And so if that's a good copy, if it's got some good stuff going on there. Well, that's good. But if it's got bad stuff going on there, well, you're, you're screwed. So, I mean, the easiest explanation for why the, at the low end men have problems is probably, okay, well, we have a load of deleterious alleles on our X chromosomes that uh. are not masked because we only have one of them, right? So that's one thing. Um, in terms of we are the heterogametic sex, so we're the sex that has, like, so in, in birds, I think it's the opposite. Or I know it is the opposite. Um, females are the heterogametic sex. The sex determination happens through them. And males have, like, the equivalent of two Xs. I think it's ZW, and I think the males are ZZ. Anyway, um, so that's one issue. And when you think developmentally, you know, we all start out as females. The female is the template. Um, and so... Men have to go through extra processes. So the end of life is the opposite. Like women go through menopause, which is a proactive physiological shutdown. 
not just like a long, slow decline like we go through in our reproductive processes. But at the beginning of life, I think it's the end of the first trimester, we go through this testosterone burst, right? SRY, the sex, um, you know, uh, you know, the sex chromosome, the, you know, the sex determining region kicks in and we become male, we become masculinized. So when you have a situation, when you have extra developmental steps, hey, guess what? That can mess things up. Okay. So we also have higher testosterone. Testosterone is antagonistic to immune response. Um, so there are more males born than females, probably because the Y chromosome of the male. A sex, the sperm of a male Y chromosome is lighter than when it has an X chromosome, okay? So probably male sperm, quote, male sperm, have an advantage in speed. There's about 104, 105 males born for 100 females. But in utero, there's a strong suspicion from people that have done, like, sampling on um, miscarriage, miscarried fetuses that males are overrepresented. So we actually start out with a bigger advantage. And we're already culled because of our genetic abnormality. Something on the order of like 10 to 50% of fetuses miscarry. Um, it's still kind of uh, not clear with the total numbers because it's really hard to track miscarriages early on, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so so that that explains like I think the, the downward, the low end. In terms of why there might be more male, quote, geniuses, I think the way you might want to look at it is there's really no reproductive value at the high end. It's just kind of like a freak thing. And um, if we're less developmentally stable, uh, we can go off target a little bit more is the way I think mm -hmm. of it. There's no reason you need, you need to have your IQ be like once. There's no reason you need to be able to do algebraic topology easily. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's no reason. And there, there is some evidence. There is some evidence in the genomic literature now with the most recent work that there is some enrichment for schizophrenia and other things with some of these educational attainment genes. Like mm -hmm. some, there's some evidence. Yeah, but is there some reason in the um, ancestral environment why, I don't know, having a brain capable of algebraic topology would be advantageous? Like, is there something that no. a human would need to do? Okay, and then uh, it, no. it, 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 it's a separate question, I guess, uh, you can answer at the same time. It, 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 do we have an explanation for why brain size decreased by, uh, like, uh, what was it, uh, what, was 10% or something like that? Something like after the yeah, it, we're just smaller. So our, our bodies yeah. got smaller. Like, it got, when it got warmer, we got smaller, but also agriculture seems to have given us really, really weak bones. We got mm -hmm. more fragile, more gracile. We shrunk some with agriculture, and so that natural process of that is smaller brains. I bet you average nutrition probably decreased some in, in terms of, like, quality as opposed to reliability and consistency. That probably meant that, you know, smaller brain sizes are more optimal to survive uh, through the attainments. I mean, we know smaller body sizes are, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, we know small, smaller body sizes are. Um, there's been a lot of negative selection uh, in Southern Europe and in Asia for small body size. And um, last I checked, it seems pretty clear that people in the eastern part of the Indian subcontinent are shorter genetically. And some of it is like East Asian ancestry, but like, I mean, just clearly like Bengalis are just a short people, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. If you just like meet like people from Bangladesh or West Bengal in the West and like they're chubby AF because they get a lot to eat. So it's not like genetics, you know? Like I used to when uh, I was, or not or not genetic but like environment. I used to I was like when I was little, people would say like, oh well, you know, people people you know your your parents because my dad's short. Your parents didn't eat a lot of meat. And I was just like, 
okay, but like now that I know about genetics, nutrition, and class background, I'm like, you know, like my my family's like, like you know, like people were like obese in my family. Like they had enough to eat. They didn't suffer yeah. from the Bengal famine. And also, my family's Muslim, so they eat beef and they got protein. No, they're just short because genetics, you know. And why? Well, we know the Bangla, the Bengali population is Bangladesh. They have cholera resistance, obviously, because you know the issues with flooding and water. Um, that's different than other South Indian subcontinental populations. I, there's some reasons why they're small too. I don't know why. Why? Why Bengalis are small? But that's obviously true. Uh, so sorry, what's the link between cholera and uh, height? Or cholera? Oh, there's no link. I'm just saying, like, there's been studies in selection. Uh, uh-huh. There's selection for resistance to cholera in Bengal. Uh-huh. It's one of the canonical examples, like the vibrio, whatever, like that, the uh, the microbe. There's clearly strong selection because of the cholera uh, over the last couple of centuries. Yeah, and then what do you make of the self domestication hypothesis? The idea that there's like a, a there's a set of genes that um uh, I guess yeah. they happen together. They're associated in many different mammals with um um domestication. You know, like smaller mm-hmm. uh, jaws, um males and females uh, looking yeah. uh, similar, and then you know uh, less intelligence. There's a cluster of other things, but so basically the idea is that the same thing happened to humans during the agricultural revolution. What do you make of that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a plausible. I think um um it hasn't really um. Uh, uh, um, it hasn't really panned out in terms of the genomics. Let's just put it that way. Because this hypothesis has been around for a generation, and it hasn't really panned out in terms of the genomics. So um, I guess what I would say is, like, um, it could be that, uh, um, and uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, what I would say is it could be humans are special in some distinct ways, okay? Um, because because like the, the it's been studied in foxes and other organisms extensively, but um, it hasn't been and and dogs, you know. And there's a spackling and some of the things. Let's talk about what you're talking about. Like there's certain like spackling patterns, um, floppy ears, just really, really common patterns across mammals because the same developmental pathways are, are tuned. We obviously don't have fl- floppy ears and we don't show piebald patterning. So um, I think this, I think it's a great idea. I just don't know for sure like how it, how it operationalizes in humans, just put it that way. I mean, it's been, okay. it's been a generation, we have genomic resources and it hasn't really, I haven't seen too much advancement in that direction. Gotcha. Um, okay, so this morning you tweeted, um, if everyone who attends a church thinks that the point of church is to bask in the war of the fellow parishioners rather than worshiping God, the church won't last long. And then you followed yeah. that up uh, with a tweet that said, uh, uh, in parentheses, I'm not talking about religion. So I, I genuinely don't know uh, what, what you're uh, what you're referring to that tweet. I, I, I don't know if you meant, meant to keep it uh, unsaid, but I was just kind of curious. Yeah, I was being Australian. I was just having a discussion. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what it was. Just having a discussion with a scientist friend of mine. We we're talking about collegiality uh, mm-hmm. and truth, and um, you know, it's like sometimes, sometimes it seems like in science today, um, and it's just not just online, but just in general, uh, you know, like the community, um, and just like you know, comfort. I guess uh, I don't know is like prioritized, and a lot of it's fake. Uh, you know, science is like it is like um, is like uh, it's like uh, it's like management consulting. It's up or out, you know. So all this stuff about like support and 
it's just fake, right? Like one percent of one percent of incoming graduate students will have like a tenured R one research one, like top research one position, like you know, relevant one, right? So all this stuff about how we're here to support you, no, like we're here to like separate the wheat from the chaff. So that's kind of like fake right there. But you know, there's a lot of talk about you know. Just kind of the community and not making people uncomfortable and inclusion and equity and i'm just like science is like super inequitous right it's not like it's not like um pedi- it's not like pediatrics or something right yeah there are superstar pediatricians but look the average pediatrician makes a difference and pediatrician's a pediatrician in science it, you have like a few superstars who i mean like it's hyper pareto principle right uh, it's mm-hmm. not like the 2080, it's like, you know, the 5 to 95, you know? So, um, anyway, it's just like a little strange there. And, um, you know, the whole idea is like truth and, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, I've just seen things where it's like, oh, like people are like, that's just uncomfortable. You can't say that. That makes people blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, like, one, it's a very, very winnowing profession. They haven't changed that no matter what you say. Like you can repeat these mantras, but it doesn't matter. Like. It's a winnowing profession. And the other thing is, um, you know, like if the science was here for the truth, like if that's not the primary focus, if you're here for like quality of life, you know, I don't know. Like, why are we funding it then? You know, I don't know. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. It's not only unequal in the sense that uh, there's like a lock curve where a small minority of scientists make the largest, uh, much larger portion of the total uh, contribution to science, but it's also unequal. I think it was you who said this or wrote about this. I, I don't know where I saw this, but um, professors, uh, the career professorship has the highest um, heredity in the sense that the, the, the highest correlation between the parent being a uh, yeah. professor yeah. and the child being a professor. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Was that you? Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I probably retweeted it. I mean, that's not, that's uh-huh. obvious. I didn't talk about it extensively because I was like, okay, everyone knows this. Everybody uh-huh. in science knows this. My right. dad was a professor, by the way. But anyway, uh, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, like, everybody who, so um, one thing is, so I have a friend. Uh, like, I haven't, you know, so people in science, people who go into graduate school in science, academic science, they, you know, reason first generation is a thing is because it's so skewed towards professional managerial class people in general. It's very, very class biased. You know, um, so, yeah, anyway, it's very class biased, but even people who come from professional managerial uh, backgrounds, if they didn't come from academia, they don't always know everything. So I have a friend who came from, like, very upper upper middle class background, and, you know, he admitted, like, yeah, like, he had to learn some things in terms of what you do um, to, to make it in science. Because, you know, his I think his dad's a lawyer. I don't remember. I think his dad's a lawyer. But, you know, so he knows. I mean, it's the same thing in medicine. Like, I have a friend who's in medicine. I think his parents are engineers. And, you know, he's, he said that they told him for medical school interviews, it's going to count against you that your parents aren't doctors. Because they just assume you don't know as much about, like, how to make it in the profession, right? And so mm-hmm. there's tacit stuff that, that gets passed on. Like, I have a friend. He's um He is a Research One professor. He does have tenure. I mean, he has succeeded. But he comes from very working class background. And by the time he got to the postdoctoral fellow stage, which is after PhD, before professor, uh, he was like talking to people and they were talking about their choices that they made as undergrads and blah, blah, blah. And he just thought to himself, and you know, he's, um, 
Like he's in like in his field, he's in a top ten institution. He's not at like Harvard, but he's in a top. So he's doing really well. So I don't want to under undersell how, how much he's accomplished. But you know, he literally told me he's like, you know, I just thought to myself, I was like, I never had a chance. You know, because he just, I mean, he did well, obviously, but like he never planned this way. He never optimized his own life because he just I mean, he didn't have that background. You know. Yeah, just like Dr. he never had a chance. So, um, you know, that is what it on the margin. Um, it makes a big difference. And I think this is why there's a lot of virtue signaling from some people um, who, you know, like some of the most. Um, what is it? There's a like there's a professor. I'm not going to name who it is explicitly, but people who follow academic Twitter probably know who I'm talking about. Um, they work in biomedical science and, you know, they do periodic virtual signaling uh, just like standard progressive stuff. Uh, but like, I think their uncle was like a Nobel prize winner and they did research in their uncle's lab when they were in high school. So, I mean, this is a person who got a huge leg up by family. I mean, they're smart. Yeah. Okay. But okay. Like they knew exactly how to succeed in science because they had all the family connections in the world. And, um, you know, so now I think they overcompensate. I think she overcompensates, to be honest. That's what everyone assumes privately. That's what they say. And I think it's probably true. You know, there's other people like that where, um, you know, online, there's a couple, there's, there's, there's one guy online who's like super, super progressive, but a friend of mine told me he's like a notorious dick um, to his, to people in his lab, where it's like, he's just like a really bad boss. He's really mean, really demanding. So obviously he's just covering his butt, like on social media. So anyway, like my tweet was basically alluding to the fact that like, well, if you're not there for the right reasons, if everyone's just there to like collect a salary or they don't know what to do with their life um, or like they like hanging out with this crew and being on the same, like, I don't know, ideological team kind of like, okay, like, I mean, what is the, what is the point of science then? You know, what is the point of where, why are you here? Why aren't you an accountant or, or a CPA or something like that? I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense, you know? Um, you're supposed yeah. to be here for a higher calling. Uh, and so, okay, so the tweet was the parishioner, the parishioner would be like the person involved in the laboratory, the research institution, and God is the truth. And if you're not there for the truth, uh, eventually the, the institution's not going to make it. It's just gonna kind of dissolve because at the end of the day, if you don't have passion for research, if you don't have passion for the truth, uh what's the point yeah yeah, yeah. um there's this professor uh, we both know but obviously i'm not going to say who it is um and so his um his 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 kids uh, also want to become uh professors so it, it, the, um uh the 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 kid uh, they um just graduated uh high school and then so they had a, a peer reviewed published paper while they were in high school, because, you mm -hmm. know, obviously the professor had guided, uh, guided them so that they would be in a good position to become a professor uh, themselves, right? So mm -hmm. when you consider that kind of advantage and somebody who just goes into college, like, oh, this subject seems interesting to me, maybe I should consider a graduate uh, academic career here. Obviously, there's like no comparison in, the, in just the level of advantage you have if, you, if you've been planning it out uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on here. Um... I've talked to multiple friends who are like in postdoc level and they just talk about like they can see over the last 10 years a massive inflation in publication where their postdocs now and like some of their graduate students have like two or three publications coming in 
Mm-hmm. And like they didn't have any publications until their like third, fourth year of graduate school, and they went to the same university. So what's happening here? Um, you know, and we, I mean, you know this, like, okay, like in the past they didn't publish as much, but they did a lot of science. So this is, this is like one of those issues when you devise a metric to measure yeah. something, eventually the metric gets distorted, right? It's just like a true right. the metrics getting distorted. There are people who are like producing, I mean, look, I mean, some of these researchers who are like, who have like 30 papers a year, what, what, what? You know, I mean, you're not contributing. You're just you're not really contributing to it. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like uh, there's like full time bloggers who don't output as many blog posts as you are outputting papers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so within the spheres that I travel in, maybe that you travel in as well, on like EA edges and stuff. There's this idea that we are living in uh, like a very important time in history, and then there's like um there's like a step function, right? So that you have like different steps, like agriculture, domestication, metallurgy, mm-hmm. um, ind- industrialization, and like w- we're at another step right now. Um, so I, I, from all the people I know, you you know the most about history, especially ancient history. Um, so do you view history as a sort of um, a, a series of step functions, each one, the newest one more important than the last? Or do you view it as just like a sort of a gradual exponential curve? Like what is your view of your long view of history? I think it's mostly gradual. Uh, we we reified into a step, but I think we might actually be in a step now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the slope is steep enough, it's a step, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we might be at a step now, um, and there have been steps in the past, but mostly we reify. So the Industrial Revolution, my understanding from economic history, is, is really more gradual and exponential. Uh, then, like, quote, revolution. Agriculture was probably like that as well. Uh, Peter Turchin's work with some of his collaborators indicates that the axial age was actually more gradual. Um, some of the coalescing of ideas, it wasn't like a step within one century, you know, around 600 BC or whatever. So, um, you know, there, this is just a situation where most of the time I think we we tend to, like, simplify it as a step. But, you know, um, you know, right now we live in an age of miracles that we don't take for granted because, you know, me, you, everybody, we're just, we're just scrambling. You know, we have supercomputers in our pockets. They're called phones. You know, we're doing, you know, science fictional video stuff. And uh, my kids uh, who are like, my oldest kid is say 10. My youngest is like five, right? Something like that. So they're, they're a little dubious about this idea. Sometimes you use the phone uh, for these non-video calls, and they're very confused why people would do that, and they're very skeptical of this idea that that's what this phone was actually originally designed for, <laughs> you know. So I mean, like yeah. this is to the point where it's like, okay, like, and like also like they um they see a flip phone and they're very confused with how that could be a phone. Like, what is this ancient technology from two thousand and seven? You know. So mm-hmm. it's just like you know because we have like a. Like a lot of people, we have like a desk full of phones, old, old phones that we never threw away because of whatever, right? Um, and so, like, you know, my, my kids saw the phone and they were like, what is this thing? And like, it's cool. And they're like, I'm like, oh, that's a phone. And they're like, no, but a phone's square, you know? <laughs> and um, they have an old rotary, like, f- toy phone. Um, they tr- traditionally use it as a hammer, you know? It's just like they don't really know what the, the form factor is. It's totally, like, weird for them. 
So, you know, um, we are living through a radical change in terms of, you know, like our social technology or information technology, like most of your viewers probably know Kurzweil, information technology is exponential. Yeah. So there are some radical changes going on right now, and we need to um, think about what that means because I think we're like, you know, I mean, VR is going to be a big deal. So I, I, I have said, like I did say 20 years ago probably, because um, we again, like you know, I know people. Hope Holden will be okay with me saying that. I've known Holden for fifteen years. You know, uh, Holden Karnofsky. I think he's mm. you know might be one of the people you're talking about about this century. Yeah. And I've said like this might be like the last century of humans in a way that we would recognize, or it might be a century of regression. I I think that we are in a meta stable state right now where. I mean, I'm looking at you right now, and you look like like a primate, you know, and you are a primate, you know, yeah. but like you have access to all this technology. Like, what's going on? You know Me especially, saying? or <laughs> no, just in general. Like, I, I look at myself. I know, when I, I see myself, I don't see a primate. I see Razib. You know what I'm saying? But uh -huh. if you look at another person, it's just like really, really like you know. You think about it, it's, it can be really, really visible. Um, mm -hmm. um, it's really, really visible. Uh, that um, that you're an animal of like that particular lineage, you know. If you when you look at right. them, you're just like oh, you see way way they move, you know. You think about so like how long is this going to persist? Like we obviously evolved during the Pleistocene, even earlier with a lot of our instincts. But now we have like the ability to destroy the world, our civilization. Like we're not going to exterminate all life on Earth. Like that's just you know probably not even all humans. You know, there's probably going to be people in the southern hemisphere for sure that are going to survive. But it will destroy our civilization, and civilizations have destroyed in the past have been destroyed in the past um by you know overreach, you know, but those civilizations had like local collapses, local regressions, and then they mm -hmm. got like more we got more robust with Samaburya with social technology, right mm -hmm. um so for example, you see the Chinese dynastic cycle uh keeps shrinking every single time in terms of the chaotic interregnum. So, one, that means that the previous dynasty was, its institutional structure is probably more robust to shocks, and then it can rewind itself back up uh, relatively easily, right? So, like, the first big, um, first big unwinding is, the Zhao dynasty doesn't really count, but let's do the Zhao, that's like 500 years decline, period of warring states, and then the Han, you know, the, the Qin Han dynasty, and then there's like, like a 300 year period of collapse, and then there's like like a hundred fifty year period of collapse. You know, it just keeps shrinking every single time. And so showing you that like cultural or social technology is getting better, information technology is getting better. But now we're global, and so like even if there's like a fifty year collapse, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're gonna lose. You know, and you know, Samo and others have talked about the fact that like we can't make rockets the way we could. 50 years ago because a lot of those engineers are not you know and our military runs on like COBOL COBOL software that barely anyone can read it's like cuneiform you know so it's like the Babylonians like we laugh at them for like 2,000 years or 1,500 years 2,000 years after the last native Sumerian speaker died they were using Sumerian liturgy you know but we are going to have a situation soon where there's going to be almost no COBOL programmers, but we have COBOL software base. And so people are going to have to, like, you know, train and, like, learn from these manuals, these ancient texts from the 1970s. 
uh, how to do. I mean, it's not like that difficult. It's feasible, but the issue here is like a uh, timing and time um, because you might not have enough programmers to service all the code that you have. Like, so these these are real issues that I think we have to deal with as primates who've organically developed this technological system and are trying to figure out um, how to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Sustain, and, um, sustain. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I had Tamo on just a little while back to discuss exactly these topics. So for the listeners who are interested, I, definitely check out that episode. Yeah, and even with something like, um, you know, COBOL or software engineering, like as somebody started, uh, started coming to your science, like even something that's that legible, you know, you can have a sort of implicit knowledge from previous programmers or like how, how does the entire system work? And, you know, this is like literally a written word, right? <laughs> that's what a program is. So that's super legible. Compare that to other forms of manufacturing. I know a guy who worked at a, a fertilizer plant. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this on air, but he, he basically said, like, if somebody did something to this fertilizer plant, that's like, okay, that's a famine right there, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. we've, we've lost uh, the source of nitrogen here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Um, oh, so uh, going back to, you made a very interesting comment about, like, we're at a point where we're using our computers to do magic, but the person behind that computer is a primate. Um, so do you see, knowing what you know about genetics and uh, the potential malleability of our genetics, do you see the future iteration as um, as us adding on to or modifying or selecting on the same biological substrate? Or do you see the future iteration? Do you think it's more feasible that we just move on to uh, entirely virtual, um, we're like M's living on computers? Like, which seems more feasible to you? I mean, it would be ironic if we're a simulation that uploads ourselves into a computer. But anyway, I don't want to get into that, you know? I don't want to get into that. Um, what seems more feasible? I think in the, in the, in the okay, like, the biological program of, re, of redoing ourselves, I think is, like, actually, it's not straightforward in terms of, like, you know, minimal risk. There's going to be a lot of false starts, which is going to be kind of crazy. But I do think people will improve themselves, okay? I think they, they will edit themselves better. Uh, over the next century, um, and but I think that there's going to be some integration with brain computer interfaces. Yes, I do. I mean, I haven't like followed it closely, but you know, I, I do move in some of the similar circles, and I think you know, brain um, technology interfaces are going to be a big deal, and I think they're going to really change the game, and I think that's going to be. Um, but but the issue there is like. So I guess I think of gene editing, to be honest, more as like Smithian growth. Where it's like you know increase efficiencies, because we have the genetic variation now, like we can make him smarter. We have the technology. Okay, like we're not we're not there yet. I can see that though. I mean, we can all like understand the basic logic there. Like there is John John von Neumann existed. The experiment has been done. Yeah. So we can aspire to create like a bunch of von Neumanns. Okay, that's great. Now the issue is like um, with with like with the with the human computer interfaces, that's never been done, right? So that is um that is like a, an innovation that's like you know uh technology driven growth that's increasing like the baseline productivity by like crazy amount like that's that could be the possible quantum leap so um mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me um that could be a big deal uh in a good way or a bad way and i think a lot of your listeners know about all the existential risk crisis and artificial you know like we talk about like you know hostile ai and general artificial intelligence and all this stuff but i mean I mean, perhaps it'll start with us. You know, perhaps Skynet will be some uploaded crazy kid. You know, where it's yeah. like, some maybe it's going to be a situation where, 
it's like it's like going to the new world where you know there were attempts to go to like to the new world they didn't know the new world was there but there were people in the middle ages who left for the west and they never obviously the ships just disappeared you know they died you know they yeah. died at sea right so there's going to be people who do things like going to mars doesn't get high for mortality rates you know these sorts of things uh similarly with like these human computer interfaces there's gonna be high death rates like there's basically people just disappear into the ether but then the first person that gets in there is gonna be like christopher columbus or you know it's gonna be a situation where they may be like actually like a very very advantageous position instead of being a primitive prototype they might like basically have all the quote-unquote land in the cyberspace, right? Where it's like they do all the learnings really early on. They iterate, they pivot, and so they can be like, you know, the god of that universe. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But I'm trying to say that, like, I think the possibilities there are, like, pretty extensive, pretty high variance. Mm-hmm. And in the short term, what is the landscape of um, uh, just, I guess, gene editing, polygenic selection? What does that look like in the next 10 to 20 years? So, I mean... Is there potential that, you know, you could, like, raise your kid's IQ by one or two standard deviations? Um, or are these going to be, like, uh, marginal uh, marginal improvements? Like, uh, well, I, by the time I'm ready to have yeah. kids, what will it look like? Yeah, well, I think with gene editing, the intelligence thing is going to be, like, 20 years. Let's say 20 years, okay? Like, I think in the short term, yeah. what gene editing really will do is will probably cure cystic fibrosis, clear sickle cell. Like, these are, like, Mendelian, quasi-Mendelian diseases with large effect loci. And people are just have issues. And so, you know, there's always a delivery problem. There's always a problem with off-target effects, which could cause mutations, could cause cancers. But, you know, if you're cystic fibrosis, you're going to be dead by 45. You're going to take the risk, right? So I think like, that's mm-hmm. honestly going to be the first thing. The first thing is going to be transfection or, like, you know, gene editing of adults uh, for Mendelian diseases. So that's the next 10 years, okay? It's already happening now. Uh, they're already curing people of, of malaria or sickle cell. And I think they're working literally right now as we record on cystic fibrosis and ALS, you know, because uh, they're just degenerative diseases that kill people in the prime of their life, lives. Um, but, you know, 20 years, that's a long time. Um, you know, we have 40-year-old IVF babies now, you know, I think almost 40. But uh, so I, I think 20 years, yes, you will start to see parents editing the genes of their offspring um i think intelligence is like difficult um because it's a polygenic trait um with a lot of lot of different genomic positions i wonder if they're going to go for other things first and then kind of work to it and then you know there's that theory that you know armand Leroy was was talking about it but other people is like it's not like what you should do is focus for like uh focus uh, on mutations and other things try to fix those and see if that just inadvertently like increases the, you know, mm, intelligence. Interesting. Rather than focusing on getting gain of function genes, which is like okay, like how do you identify those? Uh, fix all of your copy errors because uh, that's a finite number. Look at compare to the pedigree of the parents. Look at the de novo mutations. Look at the parents' de novo mutations against the idealized reference, et cetera, et cetera. That might be much more feasible. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about yeah. that. Do you have an estimate for how many SNPs uh, affect the variation in intelligence between people? Uh, let's see. Um, how many SNPs? Mm-hmm. Or like I think just, it's uh, going to yeah. be an order of thousands. Um, just, okay. Just, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, all right. So just just some meta questions to close out on. So yeah. um, you, you've uh, you know you you distinguished yourself uh, in your career by being somebody who, who's like an expert in history and an expert in genomics and life sciences more generally. Uh, are there other fields where you think uh, knowledge of history would be very useful in setting up like a separate niche? Because like you you have a niche in history and genomics. Um, but, you know, it would be hard to imagine, for example, somebody mm. knowing a lot about history and computer science having a special niche, right? Yeah, like, so what, what, cultural what evolution. There? Yeah, cultural evolution. That's what Joe Henrik and some of his people are wanting, uh-huh. wanted to do. Um, yeah, so I think, um, I think like, in cultural evolution, there's going to be a lot of gains because, uh, you know, Peter Turchin, Joe Henrik, these people are applying evolutionary principles to historical processes. And to have the empirical data set, um, um, uh to have the empirical data sets really important and this is a really new nascent field so i think that that's going to be the big thing that i would think people should focus on um peter said like oh like get anthropology knowledge and i'm like i i, I don't think the short-term knowledge is super important i think having a like deep deep not deep thick knowledge about historical arts um uh, would probably be pretty useful yeah hmm, interesting interesting and, but, I mean, joe, um, joe and his group are they're working on that they're they're moving into history. They're going. They're doing some serious imperialism that's causing problems. Yeah, causing problems. How? Yeah. Uh just historians do not like the turf, turf infringement. That's what I'm saying. I so, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um. And you. So you. You're. You're one of the top bloggers on Substack, and you have this like deeply technical blog on you know the science of genomics and other things. Um, you know that, that that's like uh, you know you would think beforehand that your prior would be like oh like how many people are going to be able to understand this or be interested in this but in fact you're you know you're one of the top people on Substack like what has the experience of that been like and like has it surprised you the popularity of your work and everything? Uh, honestly, no. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it surprised. Okay, I'm going to be honest. It probably surprised me like how many people are willing to pay, but people have been reading me for a long time, so I just mm. kind of like professionalized it some um and uh yeah um it's it's been great uh and uh it's really like helped me figure out what people are interested in in terms of what they're willing to pay for and uh you know it's it's given me some direction i guess but um i'm i plan to do i basically do what i continue to have done in various ways in the past into the future and um you know like thinking in startup world uh way i would pivot and iterate is what is what i'm thinking Mm. And yeah. final question: Do you have any advice for people who like want to write about technical topics uh, in a way that's like very interesting to a broad audience? Uh, okay, so you have to make it relevant to them somehow. So, for example, uh, like let's say you want to write about signal detection. Um, I mm-hmm. think like you know um, text to speech type stuff. I think is one. There, there, there are things people are super interested in. So, for example, people were super interested in Ashkenazi Jewish genetics. Uh, people were super interested in the genetic architecture of skin color. I mean, okay, why? I can talk about the genetic architecture of, like, I don't know, something else, you know? Uh, and it wouldn't be as super interesting. So you you have to find the domain that they're interested in and then apply your method, right? Mm. So if you're interested in – so actually there's a, a substack on personality uh, – that talks about personality and using um, machine learning methods to classify personality. Okay. Mm. Machine learning is technical, but personality is interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. All right, Rajiv. Uh, Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for your time.